Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guests are recovering members of Food Acts and Recovery Anonymous, and they'll be sharing their story of food addiction and how FA helped them. So Bridget and John, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So usually we, we talk about um, growing up and the factors that influenced you to take the direction you did. So I'll start with you, Bridget. So what was life like for you growing up? Pretty idyllic, really, pretty easy. I grew up in a beach suburb in Coogee. In the beginning, life was pretty okay. I can't remember really having a huge issue with food, but there were signposts along the way, you know. But I um, grew up uh, very much in the beach culture. So I was in a swimming costume a lot and that kind of thing. But generally, was fairly easygoing, a fairly easy life. And definitely, there were, I, I think, relating to food addiction, there was probably the body image issues of being on the beach a lot. But I can't recall huge problems way, way back, but there were a few signposts, I guess. Yeah. So did you have brothers and sisters? Yep. I'm in a large family, uh, one of seven. And yeah, there was a lot of uh, addiction in my family already that my father was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and so was his father. And my mother was a member of Al-Anon and that all happened um, before I was even born. So it goes back a fair way in my family in terms of um, not just addiction, but recovery from addiction goes back a fair way as well. Okay. What was it like at school then? Did you make friends easily? I did. I was actually, I made friends easily, but the way I thought about myself wasn't always easy. Actually, I was surprised when people liked me. And I was surprised that I was popular because I didn't feel that way inside. Yeah, I didn't always feel like I had a lot to offer. I was the sort of kid that, like my sister or my brother, they were the ones that had the personality or what have you. I wasn't that person. So even though I think I had a lot of friends, I always felt strange about myself. Can you, can you explain that? How did you feel disassociated from others? I guess it was insecurity, you know, a sense that of my, I just wasn't, uh, I didn't have a good enough personality. Yeah, that perhaps I didn't deserve things that other people deserved, that kind of thing. I was shy to an extent, but then again, I had this dual personality. I was also quite forthright in some ways and in other ways I wasn't. So I had, uh, I had that going on. But this is all in hindsight. I think at the time I really wasn't very aware of it. I really wasn't very conscious at the time. But this is after many years of recovery, being able to look back and sort of see, oh, yes, they were, these were things that were going on. But at the time, I think I just forged my way through life. 
But I do remember being surprised when people would say, you know, well, I really like you. Or I had a brother who was a couple of, just a couple of years older than, than me. And I was surprised when some of his friends became interested in me as perhaps as a girlfriend or something like that. Those kinds of things, I'd go, really, me? Uh, it's funny looking back, isn't it? What were the signposts that you think were important at that point that you mentioned before? I had this strange fear when I'd be walking home from school and I would imagine, you know, catastrophes happening or that I would get home and a member of my family had passed away and I would imagine how that felt. Don't think that's normal. I'm not sure, but I don't think that's normal, that kind of thing. Being very scared of the dark, being very afraid of the unknown. Yeah, wanting to be quite cloistered within a family unit. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being a member of a large family because I felt safe within that unit. So what about at school? Did your friends detect that there was anything different with you? No, I was very good at hiding it. Very good. I basically developed a very outward, like a strong outward persona as, as I went along, confident. Because I was afraid, I appeared to be fearless. I would like to appear to be fearless. So did it change when you got into higher school? Yes, because I stopped being a big fish in a small bowl and I went to becoming a small fish in a large bowl, you know, in that way that all the rules changed. I was fine when I knew everything and everybody. And then when I got into high school, it was that terrible kind of realisation that perhaps I wasn't the brightest or the this or the thatest, you know, in my class. And so what happened for me was I think I had to develop that persona more and more and I became the class clown. I became the one who wanted to entertain everybody all the time, organise the parties, railroad people into my, you know, like, let's do this, let's do that. Yeah, so I became more and more like that. And it just kind of started building up a lot of walls. So when did food start to become a problem or an issue? At first, it manifested for me in a weight, what I thought was a weight issue, because um, I went to Weight Watchers for the very first time when I was 13, and I only had 10 pounds to lose. But I was always, always, because I, like I said, I grew up in a beach culture, I was obsessed with having like a flat stomach. I wasn't built that way. Not that I had a bad figure or anything, but I just uh, couldn't accept myself I was always wanting a different type of figure a different type of you know I wanted to be taller I wanted to be this I wanted to be that I think it manifested in me in a weight obsession and I was always on a diet so from year seven I went to my first Weight Watchers meeting I went to my last Weight Watchers meeting at 27 so I tried I tried that over and over and over again and dieting became part and parcel of my life and I just thought everyone went on a diet you know but I guess I soon began to sort of realize that diets didn't work for me and so the eating 
it wasn't even like I was binging or morbidly obese or anything like that. I was always trying to restrict at the same time, but I was not able to lose weight. So it was this crazy feeling of why, you know, why isn't it happening? Because I'm dieting and sometimes I would have some success with the Weight Watchers program because it was a little bit of accountability. But whenever I had to do it by myself, I was I was hopeless. So I, I then would do things like try and run around the block or um, I started joining gyms. That was a big uh, part of my story in the beginning when I was a sort of teenager or I'd play netball, I'd want to play sports, I'd want to do things that would keep the weight off. Weight and my self-esteem was very, very, very interlinked. If I was slim, I was okay. If I was fat, I was bad. That was it. Doesn't sound good. Not a way to live. <laughs> no. Okay, I'll swap over to you, John. Uh, sort of same question. So what was what was growing up like for you? And, um, and also, did you have any addictions in your family generally? I grew up at Coogee as well, a beachside suburb in, in Sydney. Yes, from the outside, it looked like a, a wonderful existence. And in many ways, it really was. Um, we as a family were often down the beach. Uh, my sisters and I were often at the pool swimming. We were great swimmers. We were taught by Olympians. So we were, we were, there was a lot of training that was going on. So we were in the pool before school, um, sometimes during school for squad training and after school. So in, in that sense, it was fantastic. You know, they'd have competitions on the beach, um, building sandcastles. And so we were all a part of that. And so in many ways, it, it was really, um, really wonderful. But there were some things also um, that was uh, that something wasn't right. Addictions in my family, nobody has found recovery in, in my family and nobody has identified as having an addiction in my family. But I believe there are a lot of addicts and I believe there are a lot of food addicts in, in my family. So an example would be, as I see it today, a lot of people in my family had or, or had diabetes they'd since passed and, you know, and they were told not to eat certain foods and they just couldn't stop eating foods and they were putting on weight and then eventually, you know, they, they would lose limbs as they were going along. So that's the sort of thing that was very, very prevalent in my family and, uh, and eventually, you know, dialysis and they would die. So in that respect, I saw, I believe, a lot of addiction in my family. But I also saw a lot of the personality change, you know, and I saw that very much so in my father. Like um, one minute he was the most loving, caring, generous guy, and the next minute, you know, I was petrified of him. I was scared. I was running from him, literally. So I saw that that personality change. I saw that in a number of my, my family members. Yeah, but nobody's actually ever identified as a uh, as as an, as an addict in my family. Although there are there are stories about oh, you know, your uncle was a, a heavy drinker, or but, but not an alcoholic. He was he just liked his his booze, or he he liked his drink, or another uncle loved a bit of a flutter on the horses or whatever it may be. It was never conveyed as a problematic thing. It was just conveyed as, you know, everyone's got their little vice and that's what uncle used to do. And in that respect, that's what uh, that occurs in my family. So did you get on well with your siblings? That's a really good question. I did get on well with my sisters. Yes, I have two sisters. I'm the youngest of three. We were close and... At the same time, if I was in trouble, 
they would uh, they would be the one that would hand me over to dad they would hunt me down and um and basically say here here's here's the here's the catch dad and uh, and hand me over so you know i was always in trouble i was always the one that um you know that was that my sisters went looking for me to catch me and bring me back and and then i would really get it from my father so yeah, but did I love them? Yes. Did they love me? Yeah, I'm sure they did. No, they do. But, you know, I still have those memories of, oh, my gosh, they, you know, they were the ones who dragged me back to dad. They were the ones who caught me. And But I guess they would have been fearful of dad, too. So they were just doing what, so that they wouldn't get in trouble. Yeah, they were surviving, too. Yeah. That's right. So what about friends in school? How was that? My experience of school was quite different. I was in, I was, I, I was going to say I was a shy person. In fact, I think I was just a, a very, very frightened, a, a frightened guy. I found it hard walking to school, and my head was always down. I didn't have a lot of friends at school. I was not the social butterfly. I was the person who was in the library, isolating. Well, not even isolating. I didn't call it that back then I just went to the library books and I loved reading books etc I had a handful of when I say handful there were probably two or three friends we were very similar because we were the outsiders we were different we were from a different cultural group to the to the norm we kind of we were very close in in that respect and um and I did have a best friend so I did I, I yeah I did have a best friend um and we were inseparable but when I say a best friend as well I really looked up to him he he was a bubbly personality he everyone loved him and everyone just really really were drawn to this this guy and I kind of um I just walked in his shadow you know, I just walked in his shadow. So, yeah, friends were, um, yeah, it wasn't easy. And high school was uh, a lot worse for me. I, I moved out of uh, the Sydney, uh, Coogee area. I moved down south. I was teased a lot at this particular school and I was I was bullied a lot for, for many years. And then I really, became, um, I didn't have close friends. I didn't have any, hardly any friends at that school. Pretty much all my time outside of school time was in the library. So lunchtime, I, I just couldn't wait to scurry into the library and spend hours, well, not hours, but I would spend most of my lunches, my lunchtime in the uh, school library. So when did food start becoming an issue in your life? You know, food became an issue probably from an early age for me. I was fascinated from an early age with food. I mean, if I look at my assignments, if I look at conversations I was having with my relatives, um, I was fascinated with food from an early, early age. In particular, sweets and sugar. I had the reputation of, um, you know, I had the sweet tooth. And, and it was true. I did have a, 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 a very sweet tooth. So food, probably around, um, well, my earliest recollection, maybe uh, around, at a guess, maybe seven, um, eight. I can think of the sorts of things I was doing, not the conversations I was having with aunties and whatever, but I was, you know, I was licking the, I was licking the bowls when my mother was cooking things, when um, I was doing that from a very early age. And, and usually it was raw products and usually it was sweet products and usually it made me sick. Not, it was, not that it was mum's cooking, but that I was eating it, but way too much of it. And I also had uh, a body image problem. I don't know if that was because of the, the beach culture and what have you. This was going back when I was in Sydney. Um, but I, um, 
I had a period where I um, had bulimia and I was very conscious of my body. So I would wear big clothes because I was ashamed of my body. My body was fine. I looked, I looked great, actually, if I, if I looked at photos and all the rest of it. But in my mind, my image of myself was very, very distorted. And that got worse. And then, uh, and then it became obsessive in that I did anything I could to, uh, to keep my weight off. And if that meant vomiting or laxatives and what have you, so be it. So, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so we might take a short break there. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Bridget and John, and we're talking about recovery from food addiction with the help of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. So, Bridget, last we're sort of talking, we're talking about you trying to lose weight, trying to keep fit, trying to do a whole lot of activities, but having little or no impact on it. So how did that change as you moved out of school and and into work or uni? It just got worse. You know, the ability to be able to do what I was able to do in the beginning got harder and harder. Stakes got higher, um, as in... um, you know, I was getting older, so it was not that I was old at that point, but, um, you know, as you do, it, 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 it's harder to do things as you get older. And, um, but more, more importantly, um, you know, the stakes were higher as in now I had to start thinking about what I was going to do with my life, you know, and um, I bombed out in the HSC. I really wasn't given, uh, I, I really didn't give any credence to schoolwork. I was... Um, too involved in the social scene and that was bad is that was they were, they were my priorities socializing and um and drinking had become a big part of my life as well by that stage so I was drinking heavily and so I chose the most the simplest thing I could do uh, to get some kind of form of qualification and to be able to get out and start working so I went to TAFE and I, I did a secretarial course which I hated with a passion but I picked up some good skills and I never really liked the job. So what I would do when I would start working in, the, in that area, I always felt behind the eight ball. I always felt they're going to find out. One of, one of the things I used to feel was quite a fraud. Even though I was qualified and I could type, you know, 90 words a minute or 70 or whatever, I could do, took shorthand. I, I actually achieved what I was meant to achieve, but I always felt like a fraud. Interestingly, they're going to find out that I'm really not the right person for the job. That often fueled the way I thought. And then, you know, just just little things like, uh, will I? But what started coming into my life at that stage was was this incessant: will I? Won't I? Can I? Can't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? When should I? When should I start? When should I stop? But eating definitely lit me up, and alcohol definitely lit me up, and made what felt inside, you know, that sense of not being good enough. It felt like it soothed it somehow. But, of course, the more I did it, the more attached to it I became and the more attached to it I became, the harder it was to give up. So I spent a lot of my time, it's like, you know, you see those games when you go to an arcade and you've got a like a mallet. You hit the mallet. Like a mole. Yeah, that's it. And then and this other thing pops up, so I've got to go over there and hit that one, but this other thing will come up over here. And that was kind of how I felt like I lived um, a lot of my life with that kind of thing. So 
I moved into share accommodation, left home, and that was really when things, you know, when I was away from my uh, normal uh, restraints, let's say, of family or parents or what have you. And then finally I took myself off to England for a working holiday and that's really where I got quite sick actually. And I did things in that period of my life, I'm probably around about 24, 25 by this stage, perhaps around that age. And um, what happened for me was that I would try and starve myself. So I was living in London, didn't have a lot of money um, and everything, all the money that I earned was went towards my social life, buying clothes, drinking, eating. And sometimes I would only even have one meal a day. So my food addiction was very, it was erratic. It wasn't a slow, I ate and ate and ate and ate and got fat and ate and ate and ate and got fatter and ate and ate. It wasn't that story, which I, I've heard a lot of. It was up, down, up, down, up down so that was the yo-yo dieter kind of mentality and so I would use things like smoking I would use coffee I would use work I would use all sorts of things to try and you know rein this thing in it was like a beast inside me is the best way to describe it it's like a beast living with a beast but the beast is you and it's inside you you know it was bigger than me and it was very problematic and the crazy thing was what was causing the problem was me continuing to feed the beast and the beast grew and grew and grew. And I felt that the only solution to this beast was to feed it more. But yet that was the problem. I was feeding it and feeding it and feeding it. It was growing and growing and growing. And this problem was just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and left to my own devices or my only way to know how to deal with it was to, was to give it more <laughs> Uh, was to give it more food, was to give it, was just to blank out everything that was going on. And of course, that wasn't the solution, but that's what ended up um, being my story. It must have had an impact on your relationships. Oh, absolutely. I was unable to have any kind of relationship with the opposite sex in terms of, you know, boyfriends were way out of the scene by that stage. I'd had a couple of steady boyfriends when I was sort of 18, 19, 20, maybe the latest one was when I was around about 22, 23, from a period of 23 up until, well, up and really until my 30s, like for 10 years at least, I was unable to hold down any kind of relationship, that kind of, I had girlfriends, but if they weren't doing the lifestyle that I want, I had fair weather friends, I had pub friends, I had work friends, but they were only my work friends if they wanted to do what I wanted to do. And being overseas at that point kind of was very convenient for me because I didn't have to deal with family members. I just was in a fair weather kind of friends environment. So everything was transient. The work that I did was transient. I was writing postcards home. Oh, I'm having a ball. I'm having a great time. You know, life of Riley. It was all just this big facade. I never wanted to admit what was really going on inside. So how did that change? I got sick and I mean, there's a saying in 12-step programs that we get sick and tired of being sick and tired. I got sober basically is how it changed. I ended up knowing that the first 12-step program I needed to go to was Alcoholics Anonymous. That was no question. And I went to meetings there in London 
And for the first three months, uh, in fact, I talked about food at those meetings very early on, but I didn't get to this to FA for many years later, um, like many, many years later. But I recognised that I had a a dual addiction at the time. But the advice, and I think it was fairly good advice really in the beginning was just deal with the 12 steps, just get a sponsor in AA, work the tools, work the program, work the steps and just see what's left over. That was the advice I was given. And it was left over. The problem with food was definitely left over. (laughs) In fact, I think in hindsight, it was probably more of a problem than anything. But that stage, um, I just had to deal with with the drinking problem. And that's what I did. I dealt with that. And that was in um, September of 1989. And I've basically been a member of the 12-step program ever since then, you know, 30-odd years later. Okay, thanks. We'll swap over, over to you, John. You were talking uh, before we broke about being obsessed with weight loss and having bulimia. So how did that start impacting your life as you were, you know, getting into your late teens and early 20s? Oh, in a really big way. I, uh, I found it hard to um, get out the door at one stage. I was, I was scared of going, leaving, leaving my, my home. And if I was at work or out, I would want to come home. I would lock myself in, close all the blinds. And I had a ritual around the bulimia. And then I'd be sticking my head down the, uh, the toilet and just bringing up. Um, essentially so it really impacted and then I'd you know get myself all tidied up and, and head out the door again and um, yeah I had a facade too my my private world was in so so different to my uh, the public world and uh, the way I ate the way I behaved all sorts of different things I had a I had a uh, a real problem with anger as well uh, that certainly didn't show itself as much out of doors that it did indoors you know I would break things and slam things and um, and it frightened me, you know, it frightened me, it frightened my partner at the time. And yeah, I ended up um, losing that relationship. Yeah, I, I, I just out of, I was out of control. I was out of control. And I was out, certainly out of control with my eating as well. And my, the cooking and hoarding and the shopping of food. So that all kind of all went all together. I ended up at one point losing um, it was pointless me trying to read a, a novel or a magazine or a book because my head was just full of food. I was constantly obsessed with food or my weight or recipes. And um, so my world started to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And my conversations just really, in the end, you know, they were all about, I just having conversations with people about food all the time. And, uh, you know, the recipes or if not food directly, it was about how, some, you know, how do you lose the weight? What, what do I need to do? It was just all around that. And people started to comment. People started to comment. And, and I got uh, a lot of people say to me, you know, do you talk about anything else, you know, than, than, than food? And, and the truth was, I mean, I was offended when they, they mentioned that. But the truth was, no, I didn't. No, I didn't talk about anything else. You know, I, um, I, I didn't read books. I read recipe. The only books I read were recipe books, you know, and my ambition in life was really to be able to tick off every recipe that was in a recipe book. That was my ambition in life, you know, and my people I knew around me were, they were getting married, they were having careers, they were buying homes or cars or traveling. And I couldn't wait to get home to cook the next recipe so that I could tick that off. And um, yeah, so 
very much impacted on my life and it just got it just got worse and worse and worse. I was very anxious, I was very fearful. I lost jobs, I became unemployable. Yeah, I was suicidal for, for many, many years, well, for a long, long time. Yeah, I was a really sick person. And, you know, I, I probably didn't realise just how sick I was until I came into recovery and found recovery. And my first 12-step program was um, uh, Overeaters Anonymous. I went into that program in 1991, um, September of 1991, and that was only because I was living with somebody. She noticed what I was doing with my food, and she noticed that I was really looking forward to going to the uh, to a particular uh, to a temple. Um, I'm, it's not part of my religion or anything, but they had a, a Sunday banquet, and I waited the whole week to get to this banquet so that I could eat and eat and eat to the point that I got, I got very, like I, w- I, would, I would be sick. And she just asked me one time, do you think you've got a problem with food? And for some reason, if anyone had asked me prior to, before that, I'd be, I was ang- I'd be angry, I'd react and what have you. But for some reason, I didn't. She was in the program. She was in Overeaters and Eaters Anonymous. And, and I went along to my first meeting and that was my first 12-step program. It wasn't my last. I'd been to lots of different programs searching for solutions because I didn't find solutions uh, as such because I, didn't, I, I wasn't coming from a place of truth. You know, I, I, you know, I, was, I, I identified as an, uh, an alcoholic at one stage in my life. And look, I, I, I've got to say, Bill, I, I've been tipsy two or three times in my life. Tipsy, not drunk. Um, and I don't even like the effect of alcohol. But, I, you know, I would, I would go to AA meetings generally thinking I was an alcoholic because I identified with everything except the drinking. I, ident- I identified with the resentments. I identified with lots of different things. And, um, but I just, oh my gosh, how could you do that with alcohol? It was beyond my comprehension. So anyway, that's my journey of 12-step recovery in lots of different fellowships. Yeah. What struck you when you first got to a 12-step fellowship? Because they're about hope, really, saying there's a way out. So was there anything at your first 12-step program that you sort of gave you hope? Yes, to know that I wasn't alone. If nothing else, I knew that, oh, my gosh, there are other people that have a similar problem, um, a, a, the same problem as me. Whatever 12-step program that it was, I identified, you know, in many respects, you know, as I said, the resentments, the, the, the fears, the doubts, the insecurities, not being good enough, not liking my own skin, but not feeling comfortable in my own skin. Um, I identified with all of that. So, yes, and I did hear recovery. You know, um, I stayed around that. Well, I stayed around those rooms for many, many years and I did hear recovery. I heard hope. I heard that there was a solution to the problem and those programs kept me alive, you know, because I, I was suicidal daily, daily. You know, if I didn't have a head full of food or what I was going to do with the food or how I was going to keep my weight up, I had a, a, the, the same head filled with thoughts of um, killing myself. So they kept me alive and I had that hope that, okay, you know, if I keep just turning up to these, to, to, to these rooms, there, there's, there's got to be a solution there for me at some point. So how did you find food addicts? It was through a, a public information session. Uh, well, that wasn't quite it. We, we, uh, we were sent, um, we don't do it, and we wouldn't do it now as such, but um, a, a flyer came in email 
and a friend of mine was going along to a meeting. He said, um, would I like to go for, to, so I thought, you know, being a good friend, I'll go and support him. So um, I was not there for me. And, and what happened for me was um, I remembered coming out of the meeting and I was really angry. I was really angry. And, and what I was angry about was how dare these people tell the truth about what I do behind closed doors. You know, they were telling my story and I didn't like it. And uh, thank goodness I had enough insight to think, oh, why am I reacting so strongly to what I've heard here? You know, that, that old expression or the, the, the common expression is just spot it, you got it. That's how I, I eventually came into um, Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous through that information session. Thank you. Well, listen, we might take another short break there. This is The Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with Bridget and John, and we're talking about recovering from their food obsession with the help of Food Acts and Recovery Anonymous. So, Bridget, going back to you, uh, you're in London, uh, you've been in AA for a while. So what was the thing that triggered you to look for help with your eating, apart from the fact that you knew it was a problem? When did it become a problem for your life? Well, I thought AA was going to solve my eating problem, and I thought AA was going to solve the weight issue, and it didn't. I thought that all I needed to do was uh, stop drinking, but I needed a whole lot more. In fact, I was only sober in London for about three months. It really was me coming back home to Sydney in, uh, we're talking late 89 at this stage, December 89. And at that stage, I used to average around 60 kilos. I'm five foot one. So I'd probably be around about 10, 11 kilos overweight at this point. And I think what I got to see was that over time, it was just a kilo, another year, another kilo, another year, another kilo, another year. And to the point where when I, when I really finally surrendered, I was up at 65 and I could see that it was going to start, the older I got, the more kilos I was going to start putting on. And it wasn't going in the right direction as much as AA saved my life. And it is an extraordinarily wonderful program and I owe my life to it. I got a lot from it, but it didn't solve my eating problem. But I recognized what happened for me was I I got to see that I was an alcoholic with food. I ate alcoholically. It's like I ate like like an alcoholic would have alcohol. It had the same effect on me that alcohol would have on an alcoholic. That was a progression, a downward progression and a realization. But what happened for me was I went to Overeaters Anonymous as well, in 1990 so I did try to get some relief but the problem was in that particular organization for me as a food addict I'm not saying that that's how it works for everybody but for me as a food addict I really in in that program the way that it worked is that I was told that I could work out my own idea of abstinence and I worked it out for myself but that's a food addict trying to work out how to you know, I, of course, I gave myself the food that I wanted and um, it never worked. So I was in that program for a number of period of about 13 years at the same time doing AA as well. What I kind of feel like for me was a case of the blind leading the blind. And um, I really had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what the solution to my problem was. It wasn't about 
just sort of talking about my feelings as much as those things are good. And it wasn't even about admitting. I could admit that I had a problem, but I hadn't been given the solution as I know FA to be. And that's what's actually worked for me was the FA solution, which was to treat myself as an alcoholic treats themselves in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is total abstinence. It was like, oh, my God, well, what is the problem? What is the drug? And the drug is flour, sugar, and quantities, unmeasured quantities. And that's a really hard thing for someone who's just hearing that for the first time to understand. It's, it's, so the difference for me from perhaps going from something, a, a fellowship like Alcoholics Anonymous and putting down alcohol was that you just don't have it in any form, any way, shape or form. And you don't need it to survive. You don't need alcohol to live, whereas you need food to live. And you can't just put everything down. You can't put food down and just have some sort of substitute food. It doesn't work. You can't just live on water. You know, you have to have food. So how do you deal with this? beast that's inside you that wants more and more food and that's what I got in in Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous was a way to eat three weight and measured meals well for me they're three but our unified definition of abstinence is weighed and measured meals with nothing in between no flour no sugar and the avoidance of individual binge foods so, wow, that was a big pill to swallow like that. What does all that mean and why why quantities? And it was because I didn't know when a meal started. I didn't know when a meal stopped. I didn't know what to eat. I didn't know how to eat. I didn't know when to eat. And the problem was in other 12-step programs that I was in was that I was in charge of that. So what I was given in Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, FA as we call it, we shorten it to FA, was a plan of eating that wasn't devised by me. It was devised by my sponsor. It was just similar to what she was was given. And it didn't include flour. It didn't include um, sugar. It didn't include my individual binge foods. So, you know, I was a big gum eater. I was a big Diet Coke and diet drink consumer. So I had to recognize what were the trigger things for me, and they were those things as well as flour, sugar, and the thing that was the hardest part for me to, to come to terms with was quantities. What does addiction to quantities mean? So I had to learn by just weighing and measuring my food that anything within that realm was what we call an abstinent meal. Anything outside of that realm of quantities that I was given was not abstinent. And it's the bizarrest thing, but it's very much our program is something to very much you have to experience. And I had to learn how to abstain from addictive eating while still fueling my body with food, but not fueling the beast. And, you know, this disease is, lives inside me. So I had to look at food as just fuel, not something that was going to fuel my addiction and something that was going to fuel my body. Fortunately, I, there's no way in the world this food addict could think that up. Like how did, how you know how could you devise that as a person who's just always looking for a, the next feel good to put something in my mouth to make me feel better to you know I was basically fixing the problem with the problem so that was over seventeen years ago I ate my first abstinent meal 
on, I think it was the 3rd of September, 2003. And I have not eaten addictively since that date. It's extraordinary. And I am now weighing around 49 kilos. I was 65 kilos when I first came into the program. So I've been maintaining about a 16 kilo weight loss. And I think that's important because even though it's my life is not about weight, weight is the issue. Weight is at the core of my disease or an issue with the inability to stay at a normal weight or the inability to control the way I eat slash what I weigh because they both come hand in hand. So I've had to learn that, you know, I just weigh myself once a week and my weight doesn't, it fluctuates the normal, you know, variance that a normal body should fluctuate, but it doesn't fluctuate within one or two kilos. And that's been my life. But what um, does fluctuate, uh, you know, is life. You know, I'm just kind of learning how to, so so having a, an abstinent meal plan for me allows me to just to deal with the ups and downs of life. My food is steady. I'm not looking all the time for new recipes, for new ideas around health. That's taken care of. My health is, in, I, I'm in good health. You know, my skin is is clear. My um, my bodily functions are normal. Within, you know, I mean, I'm not superhuman, but I'm have normal bodily functions, and life is sort of on an even keel for me because that I eat these three. Well, for me, it's three weight and measured meals. Some people may have to do different numbers, but I'm I do those three, and I don't eat in between no matter what. And I have a set of tools that help me to not eat in between those three meals. And those tools are very similar to the tools in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, quiet time and phone calls and meetings and regular meetings, um, you know, literature. We read the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, um, you know, these kinds of things, service, gratitude, and the principles and the 12 steps and 12 traditions. And I get to work something called an AWOL, A-W-O-L. It stands for a way of life. It's a way. We work the 12 steps in this program and I get to work through the 12 steps and get to pass this on. I get to sponsor people. I'm sponsored still by that same sponsor that I had the first day that I started and I get to pass on the program to other people. Do you still need other fellowships or is one enough? No, I don't. This is enough. I kind of say it deals with me as a, as a, I'm an alcoholic with food, you know, that, that works for me. Other people may, I'm not, I don't, I've got to say, most importantly, I don't speak for FA as a whole and other people may have a different experience of that, but I don't. I, I, I have found that if I put all, all my eggs in this basket, um, I'm going to get to, I just, you know, we do three committed meetings a week. That's enough. I need to commit to three FA meetings and the rest of my time gets spent doing other tools and living my life. Thank you. John, we finished last talking to you and we were talking about you hearing about food addicts through a PI session. So what was it like to go to your first FA meeting and find all these other people just like you? Mixed feelings, Bill. Um, one, I, uh, I, uh, I had a lot of relief. I was so grateful that there was a room of people who thought the way I did, who behaved around food the way I did or in life, um, but also had uh, a solution. 
and I was scared. And what I was scared about was I couldn't imagine my life um, without food, addictively eating. I was, because I had tried for many, many years to put down the food. I had looked all in like self-help programs. I'd been to psychiatrists and um, therapists and I've been to many, many different places searching for a solution to my problem. And, and I failed miserably every time, every single solitary time. So I came in and I thought, how is this going to really, really work for me? And plus I had that feeling of, um, oh, it's going to work for you. It's worked for you, but I'm not sure it's going to work for me. I'm super different, you know, because of a whole lot of different reasons. So mixed feelings, but I was certainly relieved to know that I'd found um, a place where people at least spoke my language. Um, and having said that, there were some things that didn't make sense. You know, how does weighing and measuring my food give me freedom? That didn't make sense to me um, in the beginning. But after I'd put the food on the scales and I was weighing and measuring my food, oh my gosh, I had incredible freedom that I had never experienced around food before. Because I had a lot of obsession. Um, a lot of my day was obsessed about food. And, uh, you know, if I, if I ate this, then I've got to do 10 laps of the pool to counteract this. But I had a slice of, I had a whole of this, therefore I need to starve myself for two days. And, um, or I have to bring up food or I have to use laxatives. So that was constantly going around in my head. Or if there was food on the table, how do I stop myself from eating it? Stop myself from eating it. And constantly, it was exhausting. It was exhausting. There were many nights when I would come home before recovery and I'd be in tears because I just wanted peace in my mind around food and I couldn't, I couldn't find it. But coming into these rooms, into the rooms of FA, I saw people whose eyes were clear. I saw who, um, who were clear in the way they spoke. I heard that they had freedom around weight obsession or body obsession or their weight. Their weight was stable. Um, I also heard um, that they were freed from obsessive thinking around food. So, oh my gosh, I, I thought, yes, I'm going to give this a go. And I did. That was the beginning. So what was it like when you first experienced the fact that you weren't thinking about food? Can you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. To, just to give you a bit of a picture, I was, when I say obsessed, um, of food as I said there were many times when I'd come home and I'd be in tears I couldn't have conversations with people without my head full of food I couldn't hear what people were saying and um, I was abstinent for about a year or so and I still had these obsessive thoughts going on and I thought oh well I'm just going to be one of these type of pe these, these abstinent people who don't have freedom from food obsession. And I heard a line, I read a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous where it was Dr. Bob's nightmare, I think, and he talked about where he had um, thought to, to drink alcoholically for a couple of years before the um, thoughts subsided. So what happened for me, yes, I do remember it. I was at work one time and I was in a, um, it was a meeting, uh, um, a big meeting, and um, I'd been praying, I'd been following the suggestions my sponsor had been saying. And I can remember my mind was quiet. And at first it, um, it frightened me. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my mind because my mind had never been quiet around food for as long as I could remember. And, uh, and I walked out of that room and I, I, I can see myself as I'm, I can, as I'm telling you the story, I, I can see myself doing where I was. I came out of the room, I walked back to the, down the corridor and I was in awe that, oh my gosh, 
you know, what what is going on here? So uh, yeah, yes, I do remember it vividly, and uh, and that was that was a real uh, absolute confirmation that keep doing what I'm doing. Absolutely, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? And the suicidal thinking stopped as well. So how did that change your relationships with others once you once food was out of your head? Well, I, I'm still learning. No, I, I mean that seriously. I, uh, I had to learn how to relate to people. I really did because for a long time, so food was my solace. Recipes were my, was my solace. Conversations were all around food. I really had to start some basics again, you know, how to, what do I, seriously, um, I got guidance by my sponsor, um, you know, this, how to make eye contact with somebody, how to talk with somebody. I had to learn from, from scratch. I really did. I, I had to come back from the land of insanity and death. I really did. Yeah. And sometimes I'm, you know, I still talk to my sponsor about those sorts of things. Like I can still be clunky. I can still put my foot in it. I can still say, you know the wrong thing, and so I'm still I'm still learning. But, but hey, I definitely have come a long, long way. So yes, my relationships have definitely changed, and I don't talk about food at all today. You know, with people, you know, I don't talk about recipes. I don't need to talk about recipes today. But I know what's going on in the world today. I can watch them. You know, I, that was not me. Um, I had no idea what was going on in the world. You know, if there could have been, I, anyway, there could have been lots of things going on in the world. And I had no idea because all I was focused on was cooking, recipes and getting the weight off. And today I'm in, I feel, I really am in the know, you know, um, I know we're in a pandemic, you know, I, I, didn't, I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't have known that had I been in, in the food because I was such an isolator. Yes, my, my whole relationship with people have definitely, um, I've, yeah, I've had, to, I've had to learn. I've had to learn and definitely has changed. Thank you. If anybody would like to find out more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, uh, you can find them in Australia on 1800 717 446 or you can go online at foodaddicts.org for local meetings and contact information. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Bridget and John for sharing their Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Oh, thanks so much, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature Alan on family groups and talk about how alcoholism affects the family and friends of the alcoholic. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR.